Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 14. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm, another to his business. While while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, And killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to to the banquet. So those servants went out to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him up hand and foot. And throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this particular parable that in so many ways reveals our hearts and shows us in story form in this Simile or this metaphor of what salvation history is all about, all that you have done to invite us to your banquet and preparing every and meeting every need in order for us to come. And so, Lord, I pray for us today. Lord, you'd help us to examine our hearts to see whether or not we are prepared for this particular feast, even as we've already ask this morning, are you washed? Are you prepared? Are you ready? And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand and to know the condition of our own souls and also the conditions of so many of the souls in our community that are not ready for this feast. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us today to hear the voice of the Spirit convicting our souls according to your word. You would help us to go out from this place, those of us who are believers, and share the good news of Jesus, calling people to be prepared for that day. Lord, we ask you to speak to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we come to the third parable in a row in this section of Matthew that Jesus is telling to the chief priests and the elders of the people. This parable in particular, like the ones that have preceded it take us through a sweeping tour of salvation history 
It takes us back to the Old Testament and in story form or in simile form shows us what the Old Testament story is like, how God pursued His people over and over and over. God wooed His people to Himself and then how God's advances and God's grace was rejected in the Old Testament, but God continued to pursue His people with love. And then we move on into the New Testament church era and we end this parable while it was spoken originally to the chief priests and to the scribes. In this parable, we also find many warnings for ourselves in the church age as well. And so what I want to do today is I want to walk through this parable. And then at the very end, I want to show you four principles from this story. And the principles will be very clear from the parable as we walk through it. But I want to leave it crystal clear in your hearts and minds how it is that we in the New Testament church should be applying this particular story, this particular parable, the parable of the wedding crasher. And I want to encourage you not to be a wedding crasher. Now, what is a wedding crasher? What is a wedding crasher? A wedding crasher is somebody who goes to a wedding they weren't invited to. And oftentimes that particular phrase is used of people who don't remain anonymous at that particular wedding, but they end up having a profound impact on the wedding. Either they stand up in the middle of the service and have something to say or make a scene at the banquet afterwards or at the reception afterwards, and whatever way they do it, they typically will make a scene at that particular ceremony or that particular reception. Now, I've asked around, I've asked around our church, a few people in our church, do you know anything about wedding crashing? Or have you ever seen anybody who has done this? And the only response I have of somebody who actually did this was somebody who said, yeah, but not quite like that. I really remained anonymous, but I was really wanting some mints and some cake. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so I have no idea why anyone would ever do this, but they actually went to a wedding. They didn't even know the people. <laughs> and stayed afterwards and got some cake. <laughs> a little odd way in my mind to spend a Saturday. I did read about another in our society. It was actually in California. Somebody actually attended a wedding and was arrested because they sought to steal the gifts from the reception table. <laughs> I'm like, I'm in jail, but I got a toaster out of it, right? <laughs> Seems like an odd reason to go to a wedding. Wedding crashing might be thrilling for some. It may be revenge for others. It may just fulfill the desire for cake and mints in others. But Jesus is using this particular parable of the wedding crasher in the end to speak to us about the reality that we see in our world today of nominal Christianity. Of people who have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Of people, as Jesus said, the good and the evil were invited to the wedding banquet, but one was found without the wedding clothes on. Someone who is in the midst of the gathered people of God, someone who is in the midst of the people of God, but found out to be a pretender 
found out to be someone who was only going through the motions of outward Christianity, but his heart was not, this individual's heart was not transformed by the grace of God, was not wearing the wedding clothes. Now, what is nominal Christianity? Nominal Christianity is defined by the Luzanne movement as follows, as a person who has not responded in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. A person who has not responded in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. However, they may be a practicing church member may give intellectual assent to basic Christian doctrines, even claiming to be a Christian. He may be, a faith, may be faithful in attending liturgical rites or worship services, even being an active member involved in church affairs. But really, it's all about cultural Christianity. It's all about the outward trappings of Christianity. But when you examine the individual's heart, there is no real relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no repentance. There is no faith. There is no ongoing reality of a deep spiritual a deep hunger and thirst for godliness, a growth in holiness, a growth in godliness, a love for His Word, a love of Christ. Really, it's a Christianity that is all about fire insurance and not about true faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is nominal Christianity. Jesus in this parable parable uses the imagery of a wedding crasher to describe the outcome of a nominal faith. A faith that is only on the outside and looks good to everybody else and fools everybody else around you. But friend, you won't be fooling God. And that is what the warning of this passage is about and that's the warning of this sermon. Examine your heart. Don't be a wedding crasher. Jesus opens up this parable with a familiar phrase. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's going to give a simile. He's going to give an extended simile of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. What is the kingdom of heaven? It's having the rule and reign of heaven in your life. It's having the rule and reign of God, of Jesus ruling as king, as Lord, as boss, as owner of your soul. This is what it's like to live in the kingdom of heaven. He also shows us what it's like to fight against heaven's rule in your life. And it also shows us what it's like to pretend to have heaven ruling and reigning in your life. There's a king that gives a wedding banquet for his son. And it's not hard to guess who these pictures or who these images are meant to stand for. We know that the king represents God the Father. And we know that the son represents Jesus Christ. The son is going to be married to his people. This imagery of how the son will one day be united to a people, to a group, to a group of people with faith in him united to christ 
And as a good king would, he invites his entire realm to this wedding banquet of his son. He sends his servants to the highways and the byways to invite people to the banquet. This represents the Old Testament prophets all the way back to Moses and writing the first five books of the Old Testament, calling people out to trust in God, to trust in Yahweh, to trust in the creator of heaven and earth, to to trust in the one who elected Israel out of the nations in order to be a people set apart for him for his glorious grace even as he rescued the children of Israel from Egypt and set them free to live in his land forever come 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 to the banquet come to the celebration come and know this great God and all throughout the Old Testament we see this invitation from Moses to Malachi, we see this invitation, come, come, come to the banquet. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1 just gives you a flavor for this call. This call of the prophets in the Old Testament to come. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you, will, and you without silver, come, buy and eat. God will provide. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. It's God who provides. God invites. God sets the banqueting table. All you have to do is come. All you have to do is believe. Turn away from yourself and believe is the consistent refrain of the Bible from beginning to end. Once man fell into sins, once humanity fell into sin and rebellion against God, believe in the God who provides. Believe in the God who sacrifices. Believe in the God who opens up the doors, opens up the way, provides everything possible, everything needed in order for you to have a relationship with him. Come, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come, let us reason together. God says to his rebellious people, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. And how did the Old Testament people respond? As we see in this parable and as we even see reflected again and continuing in our world today, they responded with apathy. They responded with, I don't care. I'm too busy. This is irrelevant to my life. I have more important things to do with my life than have a deep abiding relationship with God. I'm distracted. I've got other things to care for. And the cares of this world, the pride of life chokes out the invitation to where it's like, eh, whatever. Don't know, don't care. But you see in this parable that God is not apathetic. In verse 3, he sends his servants to summon those invited to the banquet. They didn't want to come. But look at what happens in verse 4. In verse 4 in this parable, again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted cattle have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Three times God says, Come. Over and over and over again, there's an invitation. Even when it's rejected, God continues to pursue in His love. He, he knocks and He keeps on knocking. He 
pursues and he keeps on pursuing. He calls and he keeps on calling. I want to ask, have you ever heard God's call and ignored him? And you hear him call again? That is evidence of God's mercy and grace in your life to continue to pursue you, to continue to love you, continue to extend his mercy and grace towards you. And perhaps even now in your soul, you are feeling this God speak to you once again. He is this one who loves you so much, even when you ignore him, even when you hate him, even when you are apathetic towards him, God continues to love you and continues to extend his grace in this invitation towards you to come. In verse 4, he continues to send out other servants, even sweetening the invitation. It's prepared. Look, the Traeger is all fired up. The, the hamburgers are ready. In fact, the steak and chicken and everything else is ready to go. It's all on the banqueting table. Just come, come. It's ready. It tastes good. It is an extravagant feast that is sat up and prepared for His people. All you have to do is come. Would you come to the table? Culinary delights beyond the wildest imagination. Food like you've never tasted before. And how how do the people respond? Eh. Or I'm going to go to my field. I got other things to do. There's another rerun on the television. I think I'll watch that. I think I'll just sit around the house. Ambivalence, apathy. We see it in verse 5. They paid no attention. They ignored him. They went away. One to his own farm. Another to his business in a similar parable. In Luke, it's the picture of apathy. It's the picture of don't know don't care. Too busy for God. Too busy for the banquet. Too much else to do. Too much life to be lived. Too much living to do. To bother with devotion to God. That's not the end of the reception to this invitation. While many are apathetic towards God's invitation, some are hostile towards His invitation. We see the hostility rising, the temperature rising in verse 6. The rest seized His servants, mistreated them, and killed them. We know that's true throughout the Old Testament. We see this rising temperature against the prophets of God. All you have to do is look at the life of Jeremiah to see that illustrated in his own life. Look at the call of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 27, it says this, So you shall speak all of these words to them, Jeremiah. You're going to speak all of my words to my people. Come, come to the banquet. Come to the feast. Repent and turn to me. I love you. I care for you. I do everything needed in order to draw you to myself. In your hardness, you would never come. But God in His grace pursues His people. 
You'll speak these words to them, Jeremiah. But they won't listen to you. You shall call to them, but they won't answer you. The call of Jeremiah. Eventually, the people responded to Jeremiah by beating him. They put him in chains, in stocks. They burned his scrolls. They gave him a death sentence. They called him a liar. And they left him in a pit in the mud to die. That's how they responded to Jeremiah and many of the other prophets in the Old Testament. We see not only rising apathy, but rising hostility all the way till we get to the very last of the Old Testament prophets, so to speak, the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. And how was he treated? He was eventually beheaded. He was beheaded. And how did they treat the Christ when he came? How did they treat Jesus when he came? John 1, 11, He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, but his own people, his own, did not receive him. So what did the king do? In verse 7, it says that the king was enraged. And the king sent his troops. He killed the murderers and burned down the city. What's Jesus doing here in this parable, as we will see he will do again in chapter 24 and 25, is Jesus is being prophetic. Jesus is speaking a prophetic word in this moment in about AD 30 to AD 33 is about the time frame of when Jesus is speaking these words because the fulfillment of the burning down of the city of Jerusalem is what Jesus is talking about would be completely fulfilled, well, at least the first time, fulfilled in AD 70. Well, the second time. There's another one coming. In AD 70, Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. It was in about this time of year, it was in the springtime of that particular year in AD 70, and he would allow anyone who wanted to come to the Passover to go into Jerusalem, but what you could not do is you could not come out. And eventually he set a time frame in about May, you will not come out and nobody else will go in. He cut off their water supply and he starved them out. They survived the summer, but it was grueling and difficult. There were factions that were developing within the walls of Jerusalem, people fighting against other people. Josephus actually records what happened in some detail. And within Jerusalem, there was this incredible infighting. There was people dying of starvation. And at that moment in August, when the people were at their weakest, the Roman general Titus marched his troops into Jerusalem, completely burned down the city, completely destroyed the temple, and killed about a million Jews. Jesus predicted that this would happen It's such a historical fact that you could go to Rome this day and see an arch that was built in A.D. 82, the year A.D. 82. It's called the Ark of Titus. It's that old. It's almost 2,000 years old now. And on the Ark of Titus, you can actually see depicted Titus's entry into Jerusalem, and you can see Roman soldiers carrying off a menorah and all of the materials from inside the temple of God. They brought it to Rome, installed it in the temple of, in the temple there in Rome. 
And to this day, you can see the Ark of Titus that was erected to celebrate his victory over Jerusalem. The temple was raised to the ground. And so we see Jesus' prophetic word here in this moment. We'll talk about that more here in a few weeks. The judgment of God falls on those who rejected his gracious invitation to him. Listen close. God's gracious invitation to you is to invite you to himself to say to God, your will be done. It's to have this sweet release away from your own will, away from your own direction, away from your own way in your life that is causing disaster in your life, this rebellious direction that we all follow because we are all sinners. The Bible says all of us are sinners falling short of the glory of God. All of us are rebelling apart from Christ and turning back to Him and repenting from ourselves, repenting from our sin. All of us are rebellious against God's will and God's ways, but God's gracious invitation is come to me and tell me thy will be done. Reject your own will. Reject yourself as king and ruler over your life and receive God. Receive Jesus as the king over your life, as the ruler over your life, as the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And there's a period of time in your life when God calls you and God says, Come to me and tell me thy will be done. But Scripture is clear either at your death or maybe even at some point in your life when you grow ultra hard that God one day will say to you, okay, you've rejected my call. Thy will be done. Don't reject the call of God. I don't know how long you have on this planet. If one thing that this last year has taught us and one thing that global events have taught us for a long time, and not just global events, but life events, none of us know how many days in our books we have. And not only that, none of us know how long and how many times will be extended this invitation to come? And so I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you, whether you're in this room or watching online. Listen to God. When God calls, receive that gracious invitation. Think about what he's inviting you to. He's not inviting you to sheer boredom. He's inviting you to a banqueting table. He's inviting you to forgiveness. He's inviting you to grace. He's inviting you into this love relationship with himself where he will pour out his loving heart of transforming grace on you forever and ever and ever and ever. And just when you think you've known and learned the greatest thing you could about God and his universe and his world, you realize you're just on the title page of this great story that goes on forever and every page is better than the next. Or every subsequent page is better than the one before it. And that is the grace of our God. Know the grace of God. When He calls you, respond to Him. He says to the, His servants, 
Look, the banquet is prepared. It's ready to go. It's getting cold. Go out into the highways and to the byways. Invite everyone you see there in verse 8. The banquet is ready. Those who were invited are not worthy. Verse 9, go then to where the roads exit the city. Invite everyone you find to the banquet. And they go out and they invite everyone, evil and good, all come in. That's the general call of the gospel that goes out to all. Would you come? Would you come? Would you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Would you come to the banquet and people come in in droves? This is illustrative of the church age where people are coming in. People are coming in to the banquet. And then as the father goes in, as the king goes in to the banquet to greet his guest, beginning in verses 9 and 10. The king comes in to, this, to see the guest, but there is a problem. One person there does not have his wedding clothes on. Now, what's going on here? In this particular parable, the invitation to come to the banquet was an urgent invitation. It's getting cold. <laughs> come now. Don't delay. Come on in. As you are, come on in. Come just like you are. Come on in. Well, how do they get their wedding clothes? How do they stop to get the wedding clothes? I think Augustine got it right. Many other interpreters get this right. How do they get the wedding clothes? It's just like it happened in Esther, just like it happened in... Genesis 49, we don't have the time to go into that. But the king provides the wedding clothes. It's the king himself in his grace who provides everything that is needed for people on the street to come in to his banquet. Why is the king so ruthless with this one not found in the wedding clothes? It's because the very provision of the king is rejected. The provision of the king to be in that banquet at that particular moment. God giving everything you need to be in that, in that banquet. You're out mowing your yard. You're covered with filth like I was yesterday. And you get this invitation. Come now. It's ready. The trigger's already been cooking. The steak is prepared. It's getting cold. Come on now. If the steak is ready, I'm not changing clothes. <laughs> But when you get to the banqueting hall, there is the king waiting for you. That's all right. You don't look like a wedding. And that was really bad in that day. Here you go. Clean up. Here's a fresh set of clothes. Everything that you need for life and godliness has been provided for you by God. But to be a wedding crasher means I'm going to do it my way. I want to be in the banquet, but I'm going to get there my way. I'm going to do it under my timing and my rules and my priorities. Can you see how this relates to nominal Christianity? Where we don't take Christianity, some don't take Christianity on God's terms, defining what Christianity really is. But we take some of these terms and we take some of our own terms and put them together and define that as the Christian life. As if we were somehow disciples of Thomas Jefferson 
where he would take his exacto knife and take out the stuff we didn't like and call that the Christian life. That's coming into the banquet saying, I don't really need those clothes. I'm happy with my mowing clothes. And the king sees this one and casts him out. Think about all that is provided. God gives us his righteousness alone. Remember the hymn, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne in, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He gives us his righteousness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All of those realities are fruits of the Holy Spirit as transformed people of God who've been transformed. That is an inside-out reality. He's not saying do something you're not. He's saying live what God has put into you in this miracle that God's already doing in your soul by faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 19 verses 7 and 8 says it this way, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. How do you have righteous deeds? The only way is transformation from the inside out. That God has done a work in you which is worked out in your, in your life. It's outward evidence of inward grace of God. The king comes in to visit the guests. He finds the one who has refused his gift, turned down the wedding clothes. How'd you get in here without wedding clothes? The guy was speechless. I find it interesting that the guy was speechless because he has no excuse. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-5, through 5, it describes the same reality. It says this, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's the wedding crasher. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's the warning of this parable. Watch out that you don't live your life having all the outward trappings and outward appearance of godliness, but denying the power the saving Christ. He has no excuse. He knew it. And this one who refused the wedding clothes was cast into outer darkness. Jesus' words there in verse 13. He says, Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. This picture of hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This picture of eternal regret. Eternal wishing I wish I would have. You ever felt that pain in your soul? I wish I would have. We all know that. <laughs> One aspect of hell is this eternal, I wish I would have. I wish I did. 
Many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. So how do we apply this parable? What are some principles we can get from this particular parable? Let me give you four of them before we finish today. Number one is this. Beware the danger of apathy, busyness, and hostility towards God's grace. Beware the danger of apathy, busyness, and hostility towards God's grace. We see all of those realities pictured in this parable and all of those very real temptations that we have in our day. I want to camp out a little bit on that apathy because I see that as one of the greatest dangers in our culture today is apathyism. Apathyism is the, one of the main religions of our society in the United States. It's apathyism. What do we mean by apathyism? It's this attitude towards God. Don't know, don't care. Don't know. Don't care. Apathyism. K. Robert Brashears, he's a professor at Southern, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He writes in an article that is entitled Engaging the Western Pantheon of Spiritual Indifference. I encourage you to read that article. I'll link to it this week on my Facebook page. Engaging the Western Pantheon of Spiritual Indifference. He says the following, a little technical, but I want, I want you to hear this. He says the following, I came to the realization that spiritual indifference was not simply an isolated phenomenon in the lives of a few individuals. It was permeating an entire culture. Oh my, isn't that true? He goes on to describe three tenets of the faith apathyism, the religion of apathyism. He says the following, in his, well, summarizing, in his three views, there are three new gods of the West. They form an unholy trinity of apathyism. The first is Enratio, which is the apatheistic god of a lack of reason to believe. A lack of reason to believe. Second is Enkausam, which is the apathy, apatheistic god of a lack of motivation to believe. And the third is Involuntas, which is the apatheistic god of a lack of will to believe. Let me explain what those mean. Enratio holds that science and secularism will give us all that we need. How's that worked out in the last year? <laughs> Science and secularism will give us everything we need. Well, we've been waiting for 2,000 years for that. It hasn't just been one year. It's 2,000 years of waiting for all of the answers. It won't give you the answers. In ratio, in causum counsels, let somebody else worry about it. Let somebody else deal with religion. Let somebody else worry about faith in Jesus and then in Voluntas, mutters that religion is just too much drama, man. And when those three gods come together, one will get you and then the other ones will call you to bow down and lead you to this new religion of apathyism. Don't know, don't care, got better things to do. And that is the prevailing religion of our culture and our society. Beware the dangers of apathyism, busyness, and hostility towards God. Number two, God's servants will be persecuted. We see that very clearly in this passage. It's one of the messages of Scripture that's clear in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 
12, it's very clear that it says, indeed, all who live, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so persecution is normal for believers. If we've endured a season where we haven't been persecuted very much in our lifetimes, that is unusual. If you look at it on a global scale, you'll see that believers, the norm throughout history and in the world today is persecution. Luke chapter 6, verse 26 says this, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When we preach the gospel faithfully and we live the gospel out faithfully, whether you're a pastor or a retired person or a teacher or an electrician, if you live for Jesus in a world that worships apathyism, you'll stand out and you'll experience some level of persecution in your life. Number three, Beware the danger of nominal Christianity. Having a form of godliness and denying its power. Don't be the wedding crasher. Don't be one who thinks that you can take some of God's terms and some of your terms and combine them together and call, the Christ, call that the Christian life. No, no, you have to be dressed in His righteousness. It's His terms alone. It's not as if we can somehow elevate ourselves to the authors of spiritual realities, authors of the fabric of the way the universe works, and says, these are the rules. We don't have that right as creation. Only God has the right to say, here is the meaning of the universe, and here is how you are right with the eternal creator God. And what God is calling us here in this parable is not to have some kind of fire insurance faith, but to go and have true saving faith. Response of the heart in repentance and say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Beware the danger of nominal Christianity. Finally, number four, hell is horrific, heaven is glorious, Jesus is the only way to the wedding feast. Hell is horrific. Heaven is glorious. Jesus is the only way to the wedding feast. Jesus talks a lot about hell. We live in a day when people are trying to deny its reality, trying to explain it away as metaphoric. Or as temporary. Or as maybe not as bad. Or even say somehow you get a second chance sometime. The Bible offers none of that hope. None of that reality. Jesus describes hell as eternal. In this passage, Jesus describes hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. The words of Jesus, Jesus has already described it as fire. He's already described it as eternal darkness. Those are the words of Jesus. Can't sanitize it. He says it's eternal fire. It's God's grace in our lives that he would tell us of this. And that he would provide a way for you forever to not have to experience eternal separation from God to experience the wrath of God. Why? It's because Jesus has already endured the wrath of God for us. Jesus on the cross, when he hung on that cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And as he hung on that cross, all of the wrath of God against your sin was placed on Jesus as your sin was placed on Jesus. And through faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, hell has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been satisfied. And if you will simply trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, receiving this free gift of grace, all of your sins have been paid for. And you will have a new life in Jesus and an eternity with God in heaven. The good news of the gospel is Jesus paid it all. So not only is hell horrific, but heaven is glorious. It's described here as a feast. Jesus later will describe it in terms of mansions in glory. It's so good that Paul says, I can't even describe. It's indescribable the things that God has prepared for those who are called, those who respond to His call, those who receive Christ as Savior and Lord. It is glorious beyond description. It is not a boring place. It is an exciting place. It is a place where you will forever know God in a place without sin, in a perfect creation where there will be no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more disease, no more sin or the desire to sin forever and ever and ever. You'll be you and you'll know other people. They'll be them. And you'll be able to know God and explore His good new creation forever. I can't imagine. It's even hard for me to describe it. It's indescribable. And you'll get to know Jesus face to face forever worshiping him Jesus is the only way to the wedding feast Adrian Rogers speaking of this decision he says I believe that a great number of people are going to die and go to hell because they're counting on the religiosity in the church instead of their relationship with Jesus to get into heaven they give lip service to repentance and faith but they've never been born again that's Adrian Rogers and I want to encourage you today, and I want to challenge you, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've been just walking through the motions of religiosity, of churchianity, I want to challenge you. Examine your soul. Examine your heart. Are you in the faith? I want to challenge those who are watching online. Know Christ as Savior and Lord. Don't be a wedding crasher. Come to Jesus trust in him call out just pray and say lord i'm a sinner i need your forgiveness and grace i believe that christ died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the grave i trust in you forgive me and thank you for all that you've done for me it's not those words exactly it's a heart of repentance and faith that saves it's jesus that saves and so let me encourage you if you've never if you want to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'll be right here to help welcome you into the family of God standing as just the representative of our congregation, representative of Jesus to welcome you to Christ. Or if you are online, I want to encourage you to reach out to us either via email or the texting number that you've seen on your screen before or go to our website. And I'd love to minister to you. I have an appointment this week with someone who reached out in this way. Let me encourage you to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let's stand. Let's pray together and we'll respond as we sing. Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, your word is powerful. It speaks to our lives. And this is a serious parable. This is a challenging parable. Oh, Lord, we thank you that it was our Christ, it was Jesus who said these things. And Lord, we receive them as the truth of God and not the invention of any man. And Lord, I pray for all of us that you would help us to examine our hearts, to know whether we're in the faith. Lord, I pray that we would not be those who have an appearance of godliness but denies power, but truly that the power of the resurrected Christ by his Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts, drawing us to Jesus more and more every day, making us more like Christ and empowering our service and growth in the fruit of the Spirit and love for one another. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts even as you've already been doing. Bless this time of response. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.